morning, everybody. It is good to see you this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Andrew, one of the pastors here at GFC, and thanks for joining us for week two in our series, Twas the Night Before Christmas. And in this series, we are taking some time to look back into the Old Testament, kind of look back before the Christmas story, and see just how things were and how things help uh, in the Old Testament help us better understand what the Christmas story is all about. And in the, the poem, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas," there are some really famous lines, you know, "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse." And we could go through the whole poem. And one of the things I love most about that poem is the picture or the version of Santa Claus that we get from it. All right, we get some famous lines like, "'And he looked like a peddler, just opening his pack.'" His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard of his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. Classic, isn't that? Now, we could go to tons of other Christmas stories, though, Christmas movies and whatnot, and get totally different versions of what Santa Claus is like. We could go to the movie The Santa Claus with Tim Allen in it, and you get a totally different picture of what Santa's like, especially with Tim Allen, as he doesn't want to be Santa Claus at first, and he's like being rude to all the kids that he's giving presents to, but through the movie, his heart changes. Or we could go to Elf. And we could see the Santa Claus in that story. Or in recent years, there's the Christmas Chronicles. Has anyone seen that with Kurt Russell? That's a weird version of Santa Claus, in my opinion. But it's different. And there's so many other versions of Santa Claus out there. And it's fun to kind of watch different movies and see the way that our imaginations go with... It's such a strange story. A guy flying through the, the air with reindeer and whatnot. But... Our minds take us to all these different types of versions, but it's all Santa Claus. They're all different caricatures or pictures or versions of St. Nick. And as we go through the Old Testament, though, the Old Testament story is anticipating and looking forward to the coming Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one who would come into the world and would save the world from sin. And as we move from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament, the picture or the version or the caricature of who this Messiah was going to be starts to kind of unfurl. And you start to get different prophecies and different texts that point to, hey, this is what he's going to be like. This is what you should anticipate. This is what you should hope for. And there's all sorts of different things in the Old Testament that point to what this baby, what Jesus, what this Messiah would be like. There's uh, different texts that talk about him being like a prophet or being like a priest, or there's all sorts of things. But then there are some that talk about him being like a king. And that's what we're going to look at today. And we're actually going to go all the way back. We're going to start in the book of Genesis and kind of just walk through a little bit of what the Old Testament talks about as the Old Testament starts to get excited and anticipate this king. And then we're going to look at what are the ramifications of that for our life. So if you want to follow along, you can go to the follow along on our, on, our, um, on our website. You can go there, you can follow along there, or you can open up your Bible. We're going to start in Genesis 49, verses 9 to 10. That's where we're going to start. So Genesis 49, 9 to 10. Now in this passage, this is at the end of the book of Genesis. 
And if you know the story of the book of Genesis, uh, humanity sins. God creates him a perfect world. Humanity sins. And then the world kind of spirals into chaos. God sends the flood. He kind of does a reboot. And he then zooms into a guy named Abraham and says, okay, Abraham, we're going to start over with you. And through you, the whole world is going to be blessed. And then Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob, who then has 12 sons. And they become the tribes of Israel. And at the end of Genesis, uh, he is dying. Jacob's dying, and he's on his deathbed, and he starts talking prophetically about his different sons. And you can go read about it, and some of his sons, it's like, man, I would not want to be that son, because some of the things he prophesies about them. But to his son Judah, this is what he says. He says, Judah, my son, is a young lion that has finished eating its prey. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. The, like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. So right here in the book of Genesis, we have this idea that, hmm, somebody's going to come from the line of Judah, some sort of king. And does, does Israel have a king at this point? No, they don't. In fact, Israel is just Jacob and his sons and their wives and their immediate family. Like the Israel, the nation of Israel hasn't become a thing yet. And because they're, they're just down in Egypt, they, they haven't been there for a long time yet. And so they're still a really small family. They don't need a king yet. But here we get this glimpse that someday some, someone from the line of Judah is going to be king. So if we fast forward in the biblical story, um, we move all the way, we move centuries forward, and we're still waiting for this person to come until we finally get to a guy named David. Now, David was a shepherd boy, if you remember. He was the, the shepherd boy who killed the giant Goliath, but was he the first king of Israel? No, who was the first king of Israel? Saul. Was he from the tribe of Judah? No, he wasn't. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. So the kingship starts in Israel, and we're still waiting. Like uh, what, what Jacob said all those centuries before about, about a descendant coming from his line who's going to be king, that hasn't happened yet until David steps into the scene. And if you know the story, uh, Saul kind of goes off the rails. God calls David to become king, and he becomes king. And David gets to a point where he's like, all right, I want to build a house for my God. He has been faithful to me. He's been so good. I want to build a temple for him. And God appears to David through the prophet Nathan. And now David, he's this king from the tribe of Judah. But we're going to start to fill out this caricature, this version, or this idea of a king a little further. And this is from 2 Samuel chapter 7. All right, And this, this is one of the most important texts in the Old Testament. All right? And this is 2 Samuel 7. It's from verses 11 to 16. And this is what it says. Again, this is God talking to David through the prophet Nathan. And David really wants to build God a temple. And he says, Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you. That's David, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. So we'll stop right there for just a sec. So right here we see that David, he wanted to build God a house. Well, God's going to build him a house. 
not a literal house, but a, a, a dynasty of kings are going to come from him. And he says, I will secure his royal throne forever. So before, with all those centuries back in the book of Genesis, we got this glimpse that, hey, a king is going to come someday. Now we're getting this idea that not just a king is going to come, but this throne, a descendant of the line of David, it's going to be a throne that's so secure, it's, it's, it's going to last for forever. All right? Now we continue on as God continues to talk to David, and he says, I will be his father. Again, this is talking about David's descendant. I will be his father, and he'll be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod, like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. So this descendant to the line of David, he's, he is going to be the one to build the temple for God. And it says if he sins, God will correct him and, and discipline him. You know, not God, but God isn't going to take his favor away. Did you see that? Even when he, if he sins, God said, hey, just because I took my favor away from Saul, I'm not going to do that for your descendant. And ultimately, again, he repeats that David's throne will be secure forever. Now, let me ask you the question. When we read that, who, who is God talking about? Who is this descendant? Because at a first glance, this sounds kind of confusing. Because immediately, if you've been a Jesus follower for a long time, you immediately go to Jesus. Like, oh, Jesus is going to be the descendant of David. But there's some things in this passage that sound kind of weird. The whole thing about um, he's going to build a temple for me. This whole idea, if he sins, I'm going to correct him. And we know Jesus never physically built a temple. We know that. We also know that Jesus didn't sin. So who is he talking about? Well, I think like a lot of Old Testament prophecies, there's kind of an immediate fulfillment in the near future, but then there's also a, a, a fulfillment further in the future. And if you fast forward in the biblical story, who was David's son that, that took over his reign as king? What was it? It was Solomon. Yeah, just making sure we're awake this morning. Yeah, I know, I know this is like nerdy stuff. It can be. But it's awesome as we're tracking through the Old Testament. And so Solomon becomes the next king of Israel. And what does he do? He builds the temple. He builds this lavish temple for God. What else does he do? He sins, just like every other human being. But he sins in some mighty ways. In fact, after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel goes into a civil war and it splits. And you have the nation of Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And so we see this fulfillment of this promise that there will be a, a king on, uh, from David that will be on the throne, who will build a temple for God. And if he sins, God will, will, will discipline him. But think about this promise. Even if he sins, God still says, I'm not going to remove my favor, David, from your line. Your line is going to be a, become a dynasty. Someone from your line is going to be a king for forever. And at this point in the Old Testament story, all eyes are now like on David's line. Like everybody's like, okay, this is what we need. Our hope now lies in the house of David. Because this promise from God is that there will be a secure king forever. And if you move, continue to move to the Old Testament after 
some of the stories like about David and the kings, you move into a section called the prophets, and the prophets go bonkers about this. Like if you look through the prophets, they are constantly talking about the line of David, the line of David, the line of David. I have a slide I want to show you that as these are just, these, this isn't an exhaustive list, but these are some of the passages where it talks about a, a king from the line of David, or they talk about a king ruling for forever, or a human being who's going to be a king forever. And so they just start to go crazy about it. The if, if we could like feel the excitement building up in the Old Testament about this theme, about this king, like it would start in Genesis as like a, as just like a little rumble. And then with David, it would start to grow. And then in the prophets, it just boils over. They are just so incredibly excited that one day a king is going to come. And I just want to read one verse from this list so you can see it. It's from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23. And again, they're filling out this version, this caricature, this picture of who this coming king is going to be. And in Jeremiah, he says, For the time is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will be a king who rules with wisdom. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. And this will be his name. The Lord is our righteousness. In that day, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. And I'd encourage you, maybe go back and read some of those other verses. You can follow, find it on the follow along. And you just can get this fleshed out picture of who this coming king is going to be. And it's just amazing. Now, the anticipation in the Old Testament, the anticipation of the king brought hope. They were so excited that this king would come. It was the gift they were looking for. Now, this time of year... The anticipation and hope, those are all kind of things that get wrapped up in Christmas, especially, um, just being honest, as Christmas comes and there's going to be gifts. Like, who doesn't like to get a gift? Am I going to be the only honest one in here? I love to get a gift. Yeah, and I remember one time when I was younger, I think I was in kindergarten, and I found out a gift that I was going to be getting. See, when I was in kindergarten, my mom would drive me to school each day, and we lived on a camp, a Bible camp, and our house was kind of in the middle of the camp, and we'd drive out of the camp into the end of this long driveway, and we'd always stop, and she'd get out of the car, she'd cross the road and get the mail. And one day when she stopped and got out of the car and crossed the road, I, I, I don't know, I was in kindergarten, I was fidgeting, I was playing around, I reached under the seat, I pulled something out, and it's this computer game. It was a Tonka truck computer game. Did, does, anyone, does anyone remember Tonka truck? Did, thank you, yes. It was this, and it wasn't just one it was two in one. It had like Tonka in the city and then Tonka in space. <laughs> and just picture kindergartner Andrew. My mind was blown. Like I was so excited. And I'm looking at this game and then I look up and my mom's coming back. And I'm quickly just, just glancing over it just with anticipation. And before she gets to the car, I slip it under the seat and just go on my, with my day. The next day going to school, what did little Andrew grab from under the seat. You better believe it, that computer game. And I did that over and over every day for until Christmas because I knew like that's what I wanted. I couldn't wait to play this game. But as Christmas got closer and closer, the anticipation and the hope of being able to play this game just grew and grew and grew and I couldn't wait. I was so excited. That's what we find in the Old Testament. 
And Genesis is kind of like, it's the first look at that computer game for little Andrew. And just like, oh man. And then with David, it's not just the first look. It's I'm looking at him like, oh, I get to do that in this computer game. And then I put it away. And then each day it just grew and grew. Just like in the prophets, this idea of a coming king just grew and grew. I don't know about you, but the idea of a king coming doesn't necessarily give me lots of just, oh, glee and anticipation like that Tonka truck computer game did. But that's what it did for the Old Testament writers. Because see, their hope wasn't bound up in just getting more stuff. It wasn't bound up in acquiring more land. It wasn't bound up in just having a successful, like comfortable life. It was bound up in a ruler coming and ruling over them. We need to just process that a little more. But as we move then to the New Testament, the book of Matthew starts off right away and wants us to see the connection of who Jesus is. And this is what it says in Matthew 1.1. It says, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Right as the New Testament starts, the writers want us to see that guy we've been waiting for, for all these centuries, that guy that the prophets just went bonkers over and just wanted, we're so excited about. Yeah, he's come. He's a descendant of David. He's a descendant of Abraham. And he is here. The king has come. Now, when you think about the Christmas story, I just want to ask you, does the idea of a king come into your mind at all? When you think about celebrating Christmas and the Christmas story, does the idea that this is a ruler who's now stepping onto the scene, does that come into your mind at all? What caricature or picture or version of Jesus comes into your brain when you see a nativity set? Is it just, oh, this is cute? Because it is kind of cute, a little baby with, with, with the animals. Is it, uh, maybe, maybe you think of peace, or the song Silent Night. Maybe you think about goodwill, Maybe you think about the journey of Mary and Joseph all the way to Bethlehem and the struggles they went through. Maybe you think about, man, this baby is going to grow up to be a good teacher. Or maybe you think about, man, this baby's going to grow up and be the savior of the world. He's going to grow up, live a perfect life, and die for you and me. All of those things are true. But do you ever think about a king? Because that is a different picture See, the Old Testament hope wasn't just that a good teacher would come. It wasn't that just a savior would come. It was that a king would come. And we could go through the New Testament then and see how the writers of the New Testament point to Jesus as the king. And in fact, we could go to Revelation 5.5 where it talks about Jesus. And guess what it talks about? It talks about Jesus as, uh, the, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Remember that from Genesis 49? And it talks about him as the descendant of King David from 2 Samuel 7. From Genesis to Revelation, we have this theme of a king coming, and by the end, the king is fully ruling over everything. But at Christmas time, we see the king stepping in to the world. Now, why is this important? Why does this even matter? Like, so what? Because the The thing, though, that we need to think about is if the baby in the manger is king, then you have to ask this question. Is he my king? 
the Bible is making a very bold claim. It's making the claim that this baby who was born of a virgin is the king. Not just a king, but the king. And I'll tell you what, growing up in the church as a Christian, I, I've gotten desensitized to that over the years because often when I think about Jesus, when I think about especially the Christmas story, I think about a cute baby. I think about a good teacher. I think about an amazing savior. And I'm so thankful for that. But I forget that this baby is a king. And let me ask you, is a king here to be ruled or to rule? To rule. Does a king uh, have subjects or are they the subject? They have subjects. Does a king give orders or does a king take orders? Yeah, they give orders. Oftentimes, at least for me, I can look at this Christmas story just as a nice story. But really, if we really think about it, the claim is very threatening to us as individual people because it's claiming that this is the king who has come to rule over me and all of us. And that's something we have to wrestle with. That's something Andrew has to wrestle with. I think especially in the time and the place that we live as people. I love our country, but think about our, our culture and our society. Like we were birthed out of this idea of like rebellion and like revolution. And like we, have the, we had like the whole manifest destiny idea of let's, let's go west, let's claim our own. We have this whole idea of follow your heart or find your own truth. Like that's an idea that's in our culture. But when Jesus steps on the scene, he says, I'm the king. I'm the one in control. You're to follow me and to know my heart. It's my truth that you're to submit to, not just your own. And in in that way, when we think about it, the manger is a threat to our own self-autonomy. It's a threat to our own idea of wanting to be our own master. And that's exactly what sin tells us to do. And that's something we don't have to be taught. Think about little kids. My wife is expecting, so we're, we're processing just kind of what's it going to be like to be parents and whatnot. And we're not yet. We're in for a rude awakening, I'm sure. But we see, I think about how I was parented or I see how other little kids are parented. And I know a little kid doesn't have to be taught how to throw a temper tantrum. A little kid doesn't have to be taught how to fight back to mom and dad. When a mom says no and the kid says, oh yeah, it's mine. Like they're not taught that. That's in them. Because they're little human beings who have a sin nature, who want to rule life in their own terms. And then as we grow up as adults, we just do the exact same thing. We just do it in a little more polite way maybe. Or we know how to hide it. We don't throw a temper tantrum, but we, we gossip or we, we try to manipulate different things. Again, because we like to play God in our life. We like to be our own king, our own queen. That's just how we are wired as sinful human beings. And so this king, this baby steps on the scene, not just as a good teacher, even though he was, not just as our savior, even though thank goodness he is, but also as our king. 
And that means we have to reckon with this idea. Am I the master or is this child who was born going to be our master? And to process this, I just want us to look at the reaction that some people had to this king. Because after Jesus was born, there's a story about the wise men coming. And I want to look at the wise men's reaction versus another character's reaction to this king and to have us just process this. This is found in Matthew chapter 2. This is the story of the wise men coming. See, the wise men, they come. They come from afar, and they're following this star. And they weren't there the night Jesus was born. Okay? That, that we often see that in our in activities. They, they would have come a little later. But they come, and they pass through the, t- the city of Jerusalem. And they're asking They're saying, we're following the star. Where is the new king going to be born? And they talked to a guy named King Herod, who was ruling in Jerusalem at the time. And he says, "Uh, I'm not sure, but when you find this new king, come tell me so then I can go worship him. If you don't know the story, King Herod's not being legit here. He wants to find a way to stomp out this king who's been born because he's threatened by him. So the wise men, they continue on. They, they follow the star. They see it. It says they're filled with joy, and they go to Bethlehem. And this is what it says in Matthew 2, verse 11. It says, they entered the house, and they saw the child with his mother, Mary. And they bowed down, and they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So the wise men, their reaction to this king is to bow down, to worship him, to present royal kingly gifts to him. We continue on in verse 12. It says, When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. The angel said, Stay there until I let you, or until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And we continue on in verse 14 says, that night Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. And continuing to the last verse, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had, had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Last part's pretty sobering, isn't it? Think about the reactions in this story. We have two reactions. We have the reactions of the wise men to this king, and they're just full they're 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 full of joy. They're sacrificially traveling from afar. They're bowing down. They're worshiping Jesus. But then think about Herod's reaction. It's the complete opposite. Herod's, he lies to the wise men. He feels threatened by Jesus. And he's so threatened that he's willing to go to any lengths, even cruel, just mind-blowingly crazy lengths to try to stamp out this king. And here's the react, what, what their reactions were. See, the wise men... They had total submission to Jesus, where King Herod had total rejection of Jesus. When Jesus steps into the scene, the wise men 
have the anticipation and the excitement and the hope of the Old Testament where King Herod, he feels threatened. His kingship is on the line and he's going to do whatever it takes to reject that. And I believe as people, these are our two choices, either to totally submit to Jesus or to totally reject him. And we may not have the reaction that King Herod did. We might not go to those lengths, but in our hearts, we might still reject him with our words, with our deeds, with our choices. Or we might say, oh, Jesus, you can have this part of my life, but don't touch that part. And is that giving Jesus, is, is, is he a king? Yeah, and if he's a king, we don't get to tell the king which parts of our life he can have. He is to have it all because he's the king and we're the subject. And I think about this in my own life. I've been a Jesus follower for a long time now. I've submitted my life to King Jesus, but there are still days and times and parts of my life, parts of my heart, where I still want to play king in my life. It's amazing as, as my life continues on and after I got married and now that I have a kid on the way and just all and working and just all these different things, it's amazing how there's different parts of Andrew's heart that just pops out and is like, yeah, I still want that. Yep, oh, no, Jesus, don't take that. Oh, I gotta have that one. Better not let Jesus have that one. And I think if we're all honest, that's how we are. And Jesus knows that. That's the good thing. He knows that we as people... When, when he died on the cross for us, he knew that in this life we wouldn't be perfect yet. That's why he's full of grace and love and mercy. And if you've submitted to him as your Lord and Savior, then you are saved. But you're still now in this process of becoming like him. And that means learning to bow at his feet in all areas of your life, 24-7. That's the Christian life. That's the process of learning to not rely on ourselves, but on our King. Now, I just want to ask us as we, could, as we kind of wrap up, as we process this idea of king, as we look at the story of the wise men and Herod, I just want to ask you, have you ever submitted to King Jesus? Have you ever done that? Maybe, maybe you aren't a Jesus follower. Maybe you've never taken that step. And I would want to encourage you to at least think about that this holiday season. Because if you look at the nativity scene and, and all you see is a, a cute baby and, and a good teacher and a loving savior, all true. But again, it's not the full picture. Just like we have all these pictures of Santa Claus and they're all slightly different. The reality with Jesus is that he is a savior, but he's also a king. And I would argue submitting to King Jesus is a good thing because he's a good king. He's the ruler of the universe. He thought in his universe that it would be good to create you. Like, think about that. King Jesus said, I don't want to not have you here. I want to make you, I want to create you, and then I want to die for you even when you rebel against me. Think about that. He came, the king of the universe didn't come with fanfare, even though he could have, even though he should have. He came and was laid in a manger, and he was ridiculed throughout his life. And the God of the universe took on human flesh for us so that he could die for us. You know, in most king movies, like movies about medieval times or whatnot, when a king gets conquered, the other side wins. And like, the movie's done. 
Think about it with our king. He came and allowed himself to be conquered, allowed himself to be killed so that we could be saved. He flips the whole idea on its head, not because he had to, but because he loves you so much. So if you've never submitted to King Jesus, I'd encourage you to think about it because I believe he's a king worth submitting to. Now, I also want to ask this question. If you have submitted to King Jesus, does your life reflect that Jesus is your king? Does your life reflect that? In the way that you live, in the way that you talk, in the way that you, you parent, in the way that you grandparent, in the way that you work, in the way, like in all areas of life, not just on Sunday mornings, but Monday through Saturday as well. And to finish off, I'd like you to fill out just this, I have this statement. It's, this season, I'm going to submit to King Jesus by blank. Just think about that for a second. This season, I'm going to submit to King Jesus by, it could be, maybe there's something you're struggling with right now. Maybe with your words, you've really been struggling submitting to King Jesus. Maybe with your finances, maybe with your time, maybe with your habits. I don't know what it is for you. I'll tell you what, there are things in my life that as I've been processing this this week, it's like, man, in this area, Andrew is still trying to rule and be self-sovereign. Andrew's still trying to be the ruler of his own life. And I'm going against my king. And so I need to change. And so I'd encourage you this holiday season, just think about one way that you can continue to submit to this baby that was lied in a manger. Process that. And the amazing thing about the Christmas story is that we get to celebrate that every year. Just like the the Old Testament prophets, they were filled with anticipation and hope. We're on the other side of it. We get to look back and we get to see the story more fulfilled. And we get to be excited about our king. So this season, what does it look like to continue to submit to King Jesus? How can we be excited about our king? Because he's a good king. He's a loving king. He's a king that said, I'll die for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so, so much for being our God. Thank you so, so much for being our king. Lord, we are terrible kings and queens on our own. We're terrible self-rulers. We, we've messed up the world by our sin, but you as king is good. When we submit to you, when we follow your lead, when we follow your rule. But Lord, it is so hard because we still have these sinful desires and tendencies and Help us to continue to bow our knee lower and lower to you in all areas of life. Help us to seek to follow after you. But thank you for not just being a king who rules with with an iron fist. We see so many earthly leaders throughout history who've done that. You did the opposite. You came humbly. You served and you died for us. Thank you for being king. Thank you for being the worthy king. We love you but we're so thankful that you loved us first. Amen.